Uh, If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, as we come this morning to the third uh, commandment, um, slowly working our way uh, through the Ten Commandments. Um, We'll read this morning Exodus 20, verses 1 to 7. Uh, Let me ask if you're able to please stand as we uh, read God's Word together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in this your word? Use it to conform us into the image of Christ, for we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the um, singers, I just turned down your mics because the speaker kind of comes back through that microphone and it kind of creates a problem. So. Remember that when you go to sing uh, after the sermon. Um, Back in, um, well, back a while ago, uh, Nancy and I had just gotten married. And um, it's a long time. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, And I was doing student ministry in this little church in Dillon, South Carolina. She was teaching second grade at the Christian school there. And I was coaching JV soccer. Uh, JV soccer that year, because the school stopped at seventh grade, our seventh graders were our JV team. We we're playing against, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth grade graders in school and other, you know, small schools, what have you. It didn't go well, but that's another story for another day. Um, and it was a co-ed team. So guys and girls, and, um, there was a girl whose name was Nicole um, her, her she, wonderful girl, um, her friends loved her. And so they had a nickname for her. Uh, they called her nickel. They changed Nicole to nickel. And, um, I, I one day decided that she wasn't worth a nickel. So we, we changed her name to Penny and it stuck. That became her nickname for the next three years while we were in Dillon, South Carolina. Um, everybody called her Penny. Her parents would even call her Penny from time to time. It just kind of became this thing. Um, I, I, evidently, there's a, there's, a, there's a trail of this in my background. Uh, Victoria, her nickname was Big. Now, before you get mad, it was because John couldn't say, John was too young to say Victoria. He said it came out as Victoria. So that was all he could do. And so her nickname was Big. She loved it. Um, Sarah, 
one day was kind of following me around and pestering me. I said, you're like a gnat. And so gnat became her nickname. And, and big and gnat would actually call each other that in the hall at school. So much that the friends, her friends would be like looking at each other going, what are y'all doing? This, it, trust me, it's okay. Um, we, we do this, right? We come up with nicknames. I, and I've got stories in my family that I will not tell here because this gets recorded. Um, some of them might actually listen. I don't think so. But you never do. But we do this with people's names, right? We have this sort of tradition in, in a lot of ways of, of taking people's names and giving them nicknames or changing it just a little bit or coming along with something, I don't know, out of the blue uh, from time to time. We play with each, other, with, with each other's names. We make up nicknames. And, 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 it's, and it's fun, quite honestly. I mean, it's, it's a term. I mean, I know I told her she wasn't worth a nickel, and so we called her Penny. But it was, it was a term of endearment. It was because we liked her, and, and her friends liked her, and she loved it. Or she would have complained, and she never did. She thought it was cool. I mean, you know, what 15-year-old girl wants to be called Big as her nickname? But she loved it because it came from... A little two-year-old who couldn't say Victoria. We tinker with people's names from time to time as a way of bonding with them and showing them sort of a term of endearment, if you will. But when it comes to God's name, we don't get that privilege. When it comes to God's name, we're not supposed to treat him like Penny. Or Big, or Nat, or any of the other nicknames we've ever given to other people. We're supposed to treat his name with respect because it is holy. It is a name that's, um, that we are not called to tinker with. We're not allowed to tinker with. And so the third commandment, verse 7, shows us that God's name matters to him. And, and I guess right off the bat, you should probably ask, but what name exactly? Um, the context tells us. You're going to get tired of this. I don't know. I hope you don't. Um, uh, but every week, I'm going to remind you all over again that the commandments, and I think I probably said this exactly like this last week now that I'm saying it out loud, that the commandments were never intended to be the way People save themselves. The commandments were never given to us to say, if you will do these things, then I will save you. Because they come after verses 1 and 2. That's how math works, right? 1 and 2 come first, and then 3 and following. And it's not until verse 3 that you get the commandments starting. Verses 1 and 2 remind us all over again that God has already delivered these people from slavery from bondage in Egypt. And it's in light of that relationship, in light of that covenant, in light of that promise and the work that God has already done that he gives us the Ten Commandments. And you notice the name he uses in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Okay, all capitals, Yahweh. Right, that's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping name of God. It's the name that he gave to Moses back in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. And the reality is the, the word is really um, some sort of a form of the to be verb. Um, it's either I am or it's I will be. 
And part of the point of God's name is that that who he is in Exodus 3 at the burning bush is exactly who he is ever and exactly who he's going to be ever. It, it gives us this indication that he never changes, that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it's by that name that he's introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 3 and that he uses here in verse 2. The all-powerful, immutable, unchangeable, immutable God has reached out to this people. And entered into a covenant relationship with them. Brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Out of bondage. And then has introduced himself by this name. So at the very least the third commandment asks those people. God's people. To honor him who has already delivered them. But we know. The word name doesn't always mean the word by which you are distinguished from everybody else in the room or some of your cases, almost everybody else in the room. When you have two Erica's, you have to go with the C and the K to distinguish between the two. When you have 13 Davids in the room, you just do your best. But, but it's more than just the name by which we get his attention. The name by which, you know, when you say it out loud, you know, you, you end up in a crowd and a kid goes, Mom, Mom, Mom. And either like 50 women look or nobody does. Until the kid says, Nancy, that distinguishes you from everybody else in the group. And so there's more to his name than just the word by which we call him or distinguish him from everybody else. You know this because you'll sometimes tell your kids, look, you know, you're going to this event or you're going out in public. Remember whose name you bear. It's always a good reminder for parents because our kids, especially here at Grace Covenant, they bear two names. They bear the name of Jesus in their baptism. And they need to remember that when they go out into the world. But they also bear your last name. And people will think certain things about your family based on what they know of maybe just one person in the family. Does that sound too mafia? But it's true. And so a a name is connected with um, a reputation, with a character, with um, uh, publicity of... um, of some sort. We don't want people dragging our name through the mud, whatever that might look like. And that's the essence behind the third commandment. It, they're not writing your name on a piece of paper and going outside on a rainy day and dragging that piece of paper through a pile of mud. See, dragging your name through the mud isn't literal, and we all know this. It means anything we might know about you, your reputation. And so God's saying, don't not only don't misuse my name, but don't misuse my reputation. Don't misuse my work. The, the, 
the names and the works by which I have made myself known. For that matter, if the Israelites, not just I am the Lord your God, verse 2, but the rest of verse 2 matters. Who brought you out of? If you start to ascribe that to someone else, or to somebody else, or to some work else, then you're dragging God's reputation, His work, His name, through the mud. And so, that's exactly what the Bible means when it talks about God's name. Uh, in fact, our call to worship. Um, I've called it, I use this absolutely on purpose. So that we could say, as our call to worship, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. That's a reflection of His work His word, His character, His attributes, what He's done for us, what He's done in the world in which He has has made. It's about Him and His character, His deeds. We see this throughout the Psalms, right? I mean, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. We're talking about His character. Not just the word by which he's distinguished from everyone else, but anything that might be true of him and him alone. Any attribute that rightly belongs to him and to him alone, by which he has made himself known to us. The name, the word name represents the whole. So when you talk about the name of God, you're talking about the whole of who he is, not just His name. His name is majestic because He is majestic and holy and good. Which means that God's name, His attributes, His work should be reserved for talking rightly about Him. Anything that distinguishes God from anyone else should be reserved for God and we should use that word correctly. God alone is holy I don't know any cows that are holy. God's name matters to God. But the second thing about this commandment is this. There are times when we see, unfortunately, that God's name doesn't matter to us. Uh, The word in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The word in vain there, it's a different word from Ecclesiastes, by the way. It means empty or lightly or for no good purpose. If you use his name for no good purpose or if you use it lightly. In other words, the third commandment forbids us from using his name in a way that's that's light or empty. That's trivial. That minimizes his name, his character, his attributes, his work, his words. We're not supposed to use his name, his character in any way that's inconsistent with who he is or what he is like. If we throw his name around for no good purpose, then we're taking his name in vain. The the Jewish people in in Jesus' day um, were so concerned about this that they wouldn't say, when they're reading through the Old Testament, they wouldn't say that word Yahweh. Um, In fact, we technically don't even exactly know how to pronounce it. Um, They left it as just the four consonants, Y, H, 
WH. Um, they would say Adonai. By the way, this is where the word Jehovah comes from. It's the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai put together, and that's where Jehovah comes from. But they were so concerned about not pronouncing it correctly because, you know, Hebrew wasn't originally written with vowels. It was just all consonants. They were so concerned about making sure they didn't pronounce it wrong that they just didn't pronounce it. They stayed away from it altogether. They were so scared that they would misuse his name that they didn't at all. And that probably goes a little too far. When it comes to misusing God's name, when it comes to taking his name in vain, I think we immediately have the list in our heads. We don't even have to say them out loud and record them for posterity. In your head, you have the list already. You know. The ones that are obvious, you get and you know right off the top of your head. We know the ones that are blatantly off limits, blatantly forbidden by this command. We know that blasphemy is a violation of the third commandment. But have you noticed how easy it is for people to type OMG in social media? And you want to write back, well, oh, cool, he's mine too. The ease with which we... People throw their hands up in despair and frustration and just kind of mutter under their breath the name of Jesus. Or even Harry Carey's famous holy cow. You know, the, the word for holy, the Hebrew word for holy is kavod. Um, it means weighty or heavy. And so when we treat his name or his attributes lightly, we're doing the exact opposite of what so when you say holy cow, you're actually not. Because you're treating lightly that which is supposed to be heavy and weighty. But I want to show you a, a few of the ways uh, this commandment gets broken. Um, we see illustrations of this over and over again throughout Scripture. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, in Leviticus 19, um, verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Just think of the number of times when you make, you know, you assert some truth and that people go, really? No way. I don't believe it. And you respond with, I swear to God. Lightly involving him in something of trivial matter that really doesn't matter at all. Or swearing falsely by his name and, and thereby dragging his name through the mud, if you will. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, in Jeremiah 23... Uh, God is calling out false prophets. They're, they're claiming visions and dreams as being from God, uh, but they're lying about it. In fact, they're actually promising Israel, look, things are going to be okay. And the one thing that Israel should be able to count on is things are not going to be okay. But they keep insisting that it is. God is saying destruction's coming, these false 
uh, prophets are saying everything's fine. And, and there's this whole long section. Just look at verse 25. God says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Anytime we claim visions and dreams and plans and attributing them to God, uh, and those things aren't true, um, those things we, you know, we can't guarantee, uh, then we are dragging God's name through the mud. We're using His name in vain. Not only are they lying, these prophets, but they're also making God out to be a liar. Because if I say, hey, I have a word from the Lord and what I say isn't true, then it by definition isn't from the Lord and you now think the Lord is a liar. Maybe you argue, wait, that's a little too Old Testament. I bet we don't see a whole lot of that in the New Testament. We'll turn to Acts chapter 19. We have this notion that um, you know, Old Testament equals law and oppressive difficulty. New Testament equals grace. And, you know, the Ten Commandments, they're mostly guidelines in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 19, in verse 11, Paul's in Ephesus. He's preaching and he's, he's doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 11. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. I said, Jesus, I know who that is. Paul I know who that is. Who are you? And so um, notice what happens in verse 16. The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You see the problem? They wanted in Jesus name to be a magic incantation. I don't need to know Jesus. I don't need to have a relationship with him. All I need, they're watching Paul. And Paul's doing all these miraculous works. And they're going, how is he doing? Well, he keeps saying, in Jesus' name, by the power of Jesus. I, he keeps using that phrase. So maybe with, that's the phrase. That's the, that's the hocus pocus. That's the magic phrase. So let's use that ourselves. And so when they treated it like a mere magic incantation, they're actually misusing the name of God. They're treating the name of Christ lightly. There actually are a whole host of ways we uh, use God's name lightly. We treat it lightly. When we pray, when we approach God and, and assume that simply by adding in Jesus' name on the end of a prayer, it will be more like magic, like like. That's going to get us what we want. As long as I say in Jesus name that I've done the formula right and I should get everything that I just prayed for. We're treating his name lightly. When we worship with our lips and not with our hearts, we're breaking the third commandment. When we claim divine authority for things we have no divine authority for. God wants me 
to do blank. God told me to do this. I've been praying about what I should do and all the doors closed and that door opened. Therefore, God wants me to go through that door. Here's the catch. Everything God has told us is in his word. Now, it may be good and right for you to go through that door. But you can't claim what God told me to go through that door because everything he's told us, everything he's going to make known about his will for our lives is in his word. And so when we claim divine authority to say, God told me to do this or God wants me to do that, we have to be careful Claiming that God wants this when he hasn't clearly told us in his word or I mean, maybe you just think it's wise to walk through that door and that's fine. You have every right to do that as long as it's not sin and violating his will and revealed will in some way. But don't claim as from God that which you can't know is from God. God's name matters to him. And we see far too often when God's name doesn't matter to us. Finally, um, look at how seriously uh, God takes this commandment. This almost cumbersome phrase at the end of verse 7. He will not hold him guiltless. Okay, I'm, I guess that's not technically a double negative, but it sure does read like a double negative. Like, that just sounds cumbersome to me. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Why not simply say he will count him guilty who takes his name in vain? And, and I think at some level, um, you know, we're sort of reminded. We said this, by the way, in question 58 of the Shorter Catechism. Uh, did you notice the answer? Um, uh, 58, 56, um, that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men. You know, we live in a world that quite honestly just doesn't care. You can say what you want, how you want, when you want. I mean, just watch movies, just watch a TV show. They don't care. Like, it doesn't matter. Now, you can usually sort of find a, a marker on, um, uh, on IMDb. You can sort of get a review and say, you know, oh, look, there are several of uh, uses of these words on IMDb um, in this movie. But the point is we live in a world that people just don't care. And it's assumed that the breakers of the third commandment will escape punishment from men. But God says, I'm not going to hold him guiltless. Does that, does that sound like something to you? Does that sound like a, a, a verse? Does that sound like a passage? Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Because I hope it triggers in your mind this phrase in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before, the, before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God punishes the guilty. And so we, even in question 56, kind of say, look, even if people escape punishment in this life, because for this commandment, they will. In fact, they're actually encouraged to break this commandment. God himself will not hold us guiltless. He will punish the guilty. God will not let third commandment breakers go unpunished because he told us he will not hold them guiltless. Now, notice he doesn't say how he's going to punish them. Because in Leviticus 24, blasphemy is punishable by stoning. The whole congregation grab a stone and, and put, him, put the, the blasphemer uh, to, to death. Did you notice the punishment in Acts 19? Um, the very person they were, the sons of Sceva were trying to cast the unclean spirit out of, attacked them. Okay. It was, I mean, this is, you think Coward of the County is impressive. This is one on seven. There's seven sons of Sceva. And they're trying to, and he conquers all seven of them. Beats up all seven of the brothers. They all leave wounded and naked because this one guy beat them up. Why? God was punishing. God used the evil spirit guy to punish them for treating the name of Jesus like a magic word. For treating the name of Jesus lightly. God's name matters to God. We see when God's name doesn't matter to us. And we see just how seriously God takes this commandment. Let me make just really one sort of extended application from this passage. This commandment is given like all the other commandments, within the context of a relationship. God has saved His people, brought them out of slavery, brought them out of bondage, taken them out of Egypt, and delivered them to this mountain. And, and in response to the initiation of that relationship, if you will. See, it's at this point, really, that Israel has become a nation. Prior to leaving Egypt, they're basically just a family. And so now Israel has, has just become a nation, as it were. And as a result of initiating this relationship, God gives these Ten Commandments. They're all given within the context of that relationship. And our use of His name, our vigilance for guarding His name, should grow out of that relationship. You hear a married couple out in public, and he just can't say anything nice about her, and she just can't say anything nice about him. He can't, everything he has to say about her is, is mean and harsh and, and hateful, and they're bashing each other in public, constantly throwing each other's flaws and mistakes and sins up for all to hear and to see and to know. What's the first thought in your head? 
do these people even have a relationship? Is that not the way we should treat God's name? See, because when the marriage is strong, then you want to sort of defend each other's name and honor out in public, regardless of what you say at home, right? At home, you have absolutely every right to point out each other's sins and failures and shortcomings for their good and their spiritual growth. But in public, we want everyone to think great, wonderful things about our spouse, and so we're singing their praises. We're talking about how wonderful and great they are. They are, And we, we never want ourselves or to hear anyone, for that matter, say anything bad about our spouse. That's the context of this commandment. God has entered into a covenant relationship with His bride, the church. And just as He honors and guards and protects her and her name before the world, she should do the same for him. That's exactly the context, the, the setting of this commandment. He guards and protects and honors her publicly. And we, the church, should do the same for our groom. Besides... We just read a few minutes ago in our New Testament reading um, that there's coming a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At some level, this commandment says, let's start that now. Among ourselves and among the world around us. If we're all going to one day bow our knee and say, that is the Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Should we not begin now to honor his name just like that? May God grant us the grace to guard his name out of love and gratitude for our Redeemer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have saved us. You have called us to yourself. You have even given us your name. We bear your name wherever we go. When we claim to be Christians, what was once derogatory, little Christ ones, we bear your name. And so, Father, would you give us the grace to bear the name of Christ our Savior well for your honor and glory? that we might rightly seek to uh, ascribe to you the glory due your name, that we might seek to, to speak well of you and accurately and correctly of you, and that we might encourage that among others around us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we wouldn't wait until your return to kneel before you and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the honor and glory of our Savior, we pray. Amen.